Good morning, everybody. How are you? Lovely to see you. God is good this morning. Let's, let's have a word of prayer before we do anything else. Our beloved Lord Jesus, our wonderful Savior and God. So grateful we can be in your presence together as the people of God, praising you, worshiping you, hearing your voice, listening to your word, fellowshipping with one another, gathering, Lord, so that we might go into the world with the gospel of Christ. We thank you, Father, for drawing us together. We love you and we worship you. Have your hand upon us today as we open up the Bible. Speak to us. Transform us, Lord. Encourage us. Lift us up. You are the God of hope. Father, Father, we love you today. We thank you that through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we can enjoy a whole new life in Christ. And we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. So, before we do anything else, we'll just read our passage for this morning. We are going to be starting to this morning a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, that's a, one of Paul's letters, and uh, it's a wonderful letter. I love it greatly. Uh, one of my 13 favorite letters of Paul. Uh, and, uh, of course, there are 13 letters of Paul, so uh, that's... Uh, that's it is a wonderful letter and it has a lot to say to us and this this is a letter that uh, probably most likely is the earliest christian document that we have uh the, the, probably written in AD 49 some people think galatians was written maybe in 48 i tend to think it was written in maybe 51 anyway if it's not the earliest it's nearly the earliest written christian document that we have and and as such it's very important it kind of gives us insight into a period only less than 20 years after the after the after the death and resurrection and ascension of our lord jesus christ less than 20 years after that this is one christian talking to some others about how they meant to live and encouraging them and it gives you an insight into what they were thinking, how they were living, and the impact of Jesus himself is so powerful in this letter. Now, let's read the text. We're going to read the whole of chapter 1, which you may be relieved to discover is only 10 verses. Let's listen. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 
And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what the kind of reception we had among you how you turned to god from idols to serve the living and true god and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come well the title this morning is starting out right or, or starting the right way and it's really, this is a passage in which Paul takes his readers back to the beginning of their walk with the Lord. And he wants them to think really deeply uh, about what happened to them back then, which wasn't all that long. He's probably wrote, writing this letter only a few months after they were converted. But he's already pointing them back to the events of their conversion and uh, to the time when they when he was with them and uh, when they first met the Lord and it's really important of course uh, to start the right way in your Christian life and uh, so another another kind of title for this morning might be normal Christian conversion normal Christian conversion and you'll see that we in the passage we read Paul said to them you became an example uh, to other believers in Greece, in Achaia and Macedonia. And Achaia was the southern part of what is now Greece. It was the Roman province in, in, in the empire. And Macedonia was the northern part of what is now Greece. And so together, Macedonia and Achaia really is roughly equivalent to modern-day Greece in geography. And, uh, and so this little church in this this land became an example to all the others because of the way they began, because of how they started off. And by the way, Paul is not using this letter to get at them and say, you didn't start off the right way. Are you sure you're really saved? That's not what he's saying. He's using it to encourage them and say, remember, because apparently there are reasons why you know, they may be getting a bit shaky in their new faith in Christ. And so he's wanting to strengthen them by returning them to the beginning. Uh, it's so important to start off the right way. Uh, you know, I, when I think back in my, I think of Christian meetings have been a big part of my life. You know, it's what we do, right? We gather. That's what the church means. Church means assembly or gathering, that word. And and so it's what we do. And uh and so, uh, I mean, we do more than that, but certainly we do at least that. And, and so, you know, I would think of one of the most difficult Christian meetings I ever had was in uh, southwest of England in the county of Devon. And uh, we were working with a church there. I was going to, we were going to, uh, uh, they were putting on an evangelistic event. And uh, it was in a rural area, a dairy farming area. And so they had... Uh, they had borrowed one of the church members' barns uh, for the event, and they put hay bales up in tiers on each side of the barn. So everybody's sitting stacked, literally stacked to the rafters on hay bales. 
and uh, all looked so good to start off with, and then the worship began. And uh, the worship team was somewhat inexperienced, and, uh, you know, God bless them. I mean, they did the right thing. They worshipped, which is always a great way to start a meeting. But the church had a, a, a sort of a, a, a song list of about 30 songs uh, that, they, uh, that they would sing. And uh, so they, you know, they were now, actually uh, 23, I think was the number. And they, they had them in a, a little paper fold, a bit like what you got this morning. And that's the same song list that they would turn out every Sunday. And so the worship team, being a little inexperienced, uh, literally started at number one and went through to number 23. And, you know, this is an event you're bringing non-Christians to. You're trying to get them to hear the gospel. And so after 23, one song, two was great. Two songs was fantastic. Three was brilliant. Four was amazing. And it went on. But no, by the time everybody got to number 23, you know, it was just getting painful. And uh, it could be because we're a bit unspiritual and don't want to keep worshiping God forever. But uh, nevertheless, it wasn't a great start. And it got worse from there. So when I was preaching... In this barn, uh, you know, and it just felt so dead and so hard. And, uh, and while I was preaching, a rat ran across the rafters right in the middle of the, of the building and a cat took off after it. And then when I built up to this big altar call, you know, you can guess how many people came forward to give their lives to Christ. Uh, a big fat zero. Now, it, you know, then we later discovered that the church was in a real struggling time because a, 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 a member of the church had gone wild, literally, with a chainsaw and killed his family. I mean, it was just, it was a bad situation to begin with. But that meeting started off the wrong way and didn't get any better as it went along. Now... Here's the interesting thing. I later discovered that someone had gone out. Instead of coming forward in the old school, they went out of the meeting and went and found a member of the church and gave their life to Jesus. Someone got saved. In that sense, it made it a great... But listen... uh, we should start out the way we want to keep going. Amen. If you're new in your Christian walk, think about how you really want to begin this because that's, you need to keep going the right way. Paul says this in Colossians 2, 6 and 7. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, right? As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so in the same way, Walk in him, just as you received him. You carry on with Jesus as you, as you began with him. And verse 7 of Colossians 2 tells you exactly how they received him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. So it was all about being rooted, founded in Jesus, established in, and standing in faith, following the teaching. So we need, to st- we need to start the right way if we want to keep going the right way. You know, I had a professor, a friend of mine, who was, uh, you know, he, he got on the plane and, and he ended up, for a conference, he ended up in the wrong city. Uh, he didn't know about it until he had, uh, until he, uh, he got, he was going to give a paper at this conference 
when he got to the airport, he just got on the plane. When he got to the other to the destination, he said to the taxi driver, take me to the convention center. When he got to the convention center, there was no convention. And he's wondering what it is. And, of course, he was in the totally wrong city, in the wrong state. Uh, he didn't, you know, that was a bad conference for him. He didn't start out the, the right way, ended up in the wrong destination. So what, how have you started in the Lord? And I'm not here, by the way, to condemn anybody. Paul, in his letter, is encouraging people, telling them, look back to what God has already done. And just like that really unfortunate meeting in Devon, where everything seemed to be a bit dead and dull and, and so on, and didn't quite go the way we hoped, and yet God still used it to save somebody, it's amazing how people come to Christ in the most, you know, apparently inadequate way. And sometimes the gospel is preached in the most inadequate fashion. And sometimes they don't make a good start. And yet by the grace of God and the goodness of God and the power of God, they still find salvation and they still meet Jesus and they, and they, and they still can grow in the Lord. So it's not that we have to try to make everything perfect because the grace of God is what really counts, amen? But this is a church that Paul is commending because they really got it right the way they began. And he's encouraging for that, and it's certainly something for us to learn. The background to this uh, book is in Acts 17. We won't read it, but Acts 17, 1 to 10, if you want to go there later and read it. But it's on Paul's so-called second missionary journey, uh, and this was Thessalonica is in, in, in Macedonia, in northern Greece. And this was where, you know, Paul had had this vision in Acts 16 about a man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And then he took that as the word of the Lord to come and evangelize Macedonia. And so Thessalonica was the second major city in Macedonia that Paul was evangelizing with his team after Philippi. And Paul had been jailed and whipped in Philippi. And he then was basically pushed out of town, even though the jailer got saved with his family. Paul was pushed out of town. He went on to Thessalonica. And we'll talk more about that transition next time when we get to chapter 2 of this book. But that's the background and, and of course, after Thessalonica, he's chased out again from Thessalonica and then to Berea and all the way down to Athens. Uh, he's basically chased by persecution all the way south through Greece. And he ends up writing this letter from probably from Corinth. And, uh, and so, which is in, uh, the southern part of Greece in Achaia. And, and so that's the kind of background, just so you know, going on here. The point here is that Paul is writing to a church that he had to leave in a hurry after just beginning it. You know, we're not quite sure exactly how long he was in Thessalonica the first time. Uh, uh, Book of Acts mentions three Sabbaths that he spoke in the synagogue, but he could have spent other time where he didn't speak in the the synagogue. So in any event, it was probably no more than, it might have been as little as a month. It might have been as much as two or three months. But it wasn't a very long period. One of the most remarkable things about this book is is the number of times that Paul says to them, 
you know this, or just as you know. And if you, you know, if you like circling things in your Bible or in, even in the notes, you know, just or underlining things, just look for every time in First Thessalonians, Paul says, you know, or you remember, or just as you know. It's a, a book full of reminders, and that's a kind of, it's a way of, of persuasion, right? Reminding people of what they already know. And, but what's amazing is how much they already did know. And, uh, and so, you know, they know about an awful lot of things with just a few weeks or maybe a couple of months of training. They were incredibly well educated. There was one or two things that they didn't know very well about. Uh, and, and we'll get to that when we get to chapter four. But I'll give you a heads up in advance. They knew about all sorts of things. They knew about Jesus coming back. They knew about uh, about uh, all sorts of things about Christ, about how to live. And the one thing they didn't know was what happened to you after you die. And Paul has to tell them that what happens, you know, and that's interesting. What happens to believers after they die? Uh, he hadn't got around to telling them, which, of course, is in modern evangelism is the first thing we usually tell people. Uh, you know, uh, do you, are you sure you're going to go to heaven when you die? You know, what happens if a bus runs over you this afternoon? That kind of thing. Uh, and so that's interesting. Nevertheless, uh, and Paul focuses on the resurrection, actually. So let's then just get right into it and we'll, uh, we'll do uh, as much as we can here this morning. He starts off with a typical Pauline greeting, right? Uh, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. That's verse one. Just a couple of things there. This is a typical way that people in the ancient world wrote in, in the first century Mediterranean world wrote letters. They start a letter with the name of the sender and then they give the name of the recipient and then they say greetings. It's, you know, I don't know if you've ever actually received a letter. You probably don't write letters. Uh, you probably just get texts or something. But uh, in, a, in, a, in an actual letter, if you ever got one or sent one, uh, one of the odd things about letters is that you sometimes have to chase all the way down to the bottom of the letter to find out who it's from. Uh, and then you go a bit to the top of the letter and start reading it. And so uh, in, in, this is much more sensible. They start with the name of the sender. You know who's from right away. Then you get to the recipient and then you get the greeting. And so, but the greeting that he sends is grace to you and peace. And that's an interesting greeting because uh, if you were reading a normal Greek letter, you wouldn't read the word grace typically in a greeting. You'd read the word uh, rejoice or joy. Uh, but it's a word that in Greek sounds very like the word for grace. So grace is charis and rejoice is charen and it's very similar. And so Paul is basically taking gladness, you know, and, and uh, replacing it with grace. And then he adds the word peace, which of course, if you were looking at a typical first century Jewish greeting, you would, it would be, in Hebrew at least, shalom, peace. And so he takes the standard cultural form 
which is starting with sort of gladness or which just really became a formal way of greeting in a letter. You know, it wasn't like they really thought about joy when they wrote this. It's a bit like saying, you know, good day or something. It, it's, uh, it was just one of those formalities. And he transforms it to grace, and then he adds the normal Jewish greeting, peace, although in this case in, written in Greek, irene. And uh, it makes a wonderful new Christian greeting. And this is Paul's, probably his first letter, and it's very simply put, grace to you and peace. And by the way, that's the simplest version of it we find in any of Paul's letters. After that, read his later letters, he starts to expand it. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and he goes on and on. And so this is a wonderful Christian greeting. And he starts off the letter this way, and it's very important. And, and then it's a prayer blessing, isn't it? And then he starts giving thanks in the beginning of the letter. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention in our prayers unceasingly. And quite typical of Paul to follow his greeting in a letter with a prayer of blessing God or a prayer of thanking God. In Ephesians, it's blessing God. It's uh, it's uh, sort of a, a way, the way you pray. And so in Ephesians 1, it's we are, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in many of Paul's letters, it's a prayer of thanksgiving like this one. And so we give thanks to God. And so just think about this, uh, how much of Paul's letters are taken up with prayers. And this is quite the case in First Thessalonians where we've got three prayers of thanksgiving and a, a, a two or three prayers of intercession woven into this letter. Paul is a man of prayer, and when he writes, he just can't stop praying. And he starts with thanksgiving, and he says, we make mention of you in our prayers unceasingly, and he says that's when we give thanks to God. Paul is a a man who's committed to the prayer of thanksgiving. Listen, Listen, this is quite important. It's not just to understand how much of Paul's prayer is not asking but thanking. And that, in some ways, seems a a rather inefficient use of prayer time, right? I mean, if you really want to get something from God, why are you spending all that time thanking him when you could be asking him? uh, And yet, you see, prayer is not just about getting stuff, is it? It's about a relationship. And if Paul doesn't thank God, that's an injustice. It's an injustice to God not to be grateful because he is that generous father who's done so much for us. And so it'd be unjust to him. Uh, It'd be like, I suppose... When you give someone a birthday present and they don't say thank you, you know, it's something you can cope with it, but it's something it's not quite right because there's meant to be a response of gratitude and God has done so much for us. We need to start with worship and praise and thanksgiving and that's a wonderful thing. And so basically when Paul prays for them, every time he he mentions them before God and he does it all the time, he thanks God for them when he prays for them, and he does it unceasingly. Wow. 
But not only is he thanking God for them, he's he's thanking God with specific memory. Because in verse 3, he says, remembering certain things. I want you to see if you can hear a well-known an important trio or triad in this verse 3. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and the endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the things that Paul is remembering. Do you hear something familiar there? You might have heard faith, love, and hope, which you probably might know better from 1 Corinthians 13 version, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, But that triad, faith, hope, and love, or faith, love, and hope, is repeated constantly throughout Paul, or or at least uh, many times in Paul's letters in various ways. It's really significant. It kind of defines Christian existence. It's kind of summed up by faith and love and hope. But I will also, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, because that is very important in this whole letter. Uh, but I also want you to notice that that's not actually what Paul is thanking God for. He's not actually thanking God for their faith, love, and hope. He's actually thanking God for their work, labor, and endurance. <laughs> right? Wow, that's an, that's an interesting triad, that one. Thank God for your work, labor, and endurance, you new converts to Christ. Uh, it's... It's, uh, it's one thing, it's all faith, hope, and love. It's all so wonderful, isn't it? But Christian life, early Christian life characterized by what? Work, labor, toil, hard work, toil, and endurance. Oh, wow. Is that really what it's like? Yes. And not only is faith, love, and hope important in this letter, but work and labor and endurance are important in this letter, and we shall see it as we go forward. Uh, this is the letter, by the way, that says the most in the New Testament about the subject of work, human work or labor. And we're going to see a lot about it. But even in this verse, we can see that work is, comes or is meant to come from faith and labor from love and endurance from hope. And so it's, that's an interesting thing. Is your work a labor of love? Is your endurance an endurance based on hope? Is your work, is your, is your labor something from love and your work from faith? You know, I mean, what I was, and you say, what work? I mean, any work. What's work? Well, productive activity. Let's just say like that. Productive activity is work, whether it's paid or unpaid. Whether it's, whether it's you know, your job, your studies, your work as in, in the home, looking after your kids, cocking, you know, anything that's, that's productive labor, paid or unpaid, is work. And all of that is meant to be rooted in faith, love, and hope. So this tells us right from the beginning that Paul's converts in Thessalonica, it tells us that their faith, it went, it got into every portion of their life, including their work life. There's too many people in the church, there's a Sunday-Monday gap, right? 
there's a, there's a kind of a disconnect between what we do on a Sunday morning and what we do on a Monday morning. So uh, how do I relate my faith and my love and my hope in Christ to, you know, my job or, again, whether it's paid or unpaid? And this is a letter that sees them absolutely integrated and uh, that this is so, so important. Now, you'll notice also that the first thing Paul reminds them of when he's by his own remembering, as he's remembering before the Lord, before God, is not precisely their actual conversion, it's their early Christian life. He remembers their faith, love, and hope. By the way, why does Paul change the order from 1 Corinthians 13, to faith, hope, and love, to faith, love, and hope? And that's because in these, when Paul uses this triad, typically the third element is the one he's going to talk about more, the one he's going to, is, that needs a bit of emphasis. And we're going to see that in First Thessalonians, he's going to say to them, you have faith, faith more. You have love, love more. But then he's going to say, hope now. That's a thing you really need. You really need and he, because there's issues that are going on. We'll see as we go through the letter. So Paul remembers and he knows their remembers their faith, hope, and love, and their work, labor, and endurance. And he knows, according to verse 4, it's all part of his prayer, by the way. The whole prayer goes from verse 2 to verse 5. And he knows about their election, and he tells them why. Now, I want to get too technical here, because when we use the word election, all sorts of interesting thoughts come up theologically, what's going on here. I just want to say, first of all, that this has got to do with the church. It's speaking to all of them. How does we know that God is, has chosen you? And it's interesting, the evidence he gives. It's, uh, and again, it's not so much, uh, I don't think, how, much, how do we know that God selected you from another Thessalonian person? But how do we know that this whole event of the gospel coming to Thessalonica was the real deal, was, was really God, was really true, was really authentic, was really something worth following? See, what's happened in Thessalonica is that they, these pagans, and most of them, a few, some Jews in the church probably, but mostly pagans uh, who, you know, uh, idol worshippers who've come to Christ, and that's a huge cost for them already because they have to there's so much that they will be looked down upon as chapter two talks about this uh and one chapter one we'll get to it in a moment talks about the the uh, persecution they've suffered in thessalonica uh, to depart from their cultural paganism to this entire to this very new kind of jewish based faith religion and what a huge move that is and and so and then there's persecution if we read if we went back into Acts 17 we'd see it and the person that they've responded to the, the people that Paul and Silas and Timothy the people that they've responded to the message that who brought the message of Jesus that they embraced has been just chased out of town 
and there they are. And how can they get help? There's a, they know probably there's a group of believers some distance away in Philippi, but it's not, there's no phone, there's no internet, there's no, right, there's no Christian conferences happening, there's no Christian books, there's no, uh, you know, there's nothing by the way of a support network apart from the prayers of the churches as they pray for each other. And even the apostles and the missionary teams going around are being chased around Greece, having to run for their lives to keep preaching somewhere. And how would you be? You have never heard of Jesus. Someone leads you to Jesus, and then you, that person is run out of town, and there you are. What do you do with it? And it seems to me that what's happening in Thessalonica is that some people are wondering, you know, was this just... Was this the right move that we make when we signed on to Jesus? Was that, not only was it real, was it true, was it good, was it proper, or was this all just a moment of enthusiasm and maybe I'm having second thoughts? And this letter is written to encourage and deeply encourage people who may be wondering if they really did the right thing when they opened up to this gospel of Jesus. And Paul tells them a whole lot of reasons why it was really God, right? And he tells them a whole lot of reasons why it was really God and really true and really authentic. And it's because of the way that the gospel came to them. Our gospel, he says, did not come to you in word only, but in but also in power and in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit and with, with much conviction. With conviction there meaning assurance, certainty. Uh, and so, by the way, you know, the gospel alone saves, amen? There's no self, but the gospel is not, we'll put it this way, the, the gospel, only the gospel saves but the gospel is not alone as it saves, right? Only the gospel saves, but the gospel is not alone as it saves. What do I mean by that? Just what Paul says here. It was not word only, but power and the Holy Spirit and much assurance or conviction. This is an authentic conversion indeed and it's the real deal because it's not just words it's power and the holy spirit now the words are important that's the gospel that's the good news but the, but notice that as the gospel comes to thessalonica it's it's a message but that message is accompanied by the power of the holy spirit in all sorts of ways and if we look at paul's at, at what happens in acts and paul's other letters we can understand this to mean not only kind of the the sort of inward work of the Holy Spirit in people as they hear the message, but we can think of it as other, you know, other activities of the Holy Spirit where signs and wonders, healings and miracles, these are the things that accompany the work of the Spirit. And Paul says this kind of thing elsewhere in his letters in a number of places. 
And, uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 4 and 5, my speech and my message were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power, and, and so on. So the gospel alone, but not on its own. I think this is important. Uh, and this is how the Thessalonians came to Christ, and this is how Paul is reminding them of it. Look, remember, it wasn't just some words you heard. It was the powerful activity of the Holy Spirit among you, and giving you the assurance, the conviction, the persuasion, if you like, as he says in 1 Corinthians 2, the persuasion coming from the Holy Spirit or the ever, and uh, the, 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 the demonstration, the proof coming from the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul knows. He remembers their beginning and their early life in faith and in work, labor, and endurance and faith, hope, and faith love, and hope. And he remembers and knows about there how God really came to Thessalonica because it was the gospel plus the work of the Spirit uh, powerfully among them. And very much the same sort of thing we see in Galatians 3, same kind of idea. Uh, it's where gospel accompanied by its faith in Christ, you know, in the message accompanied and what they heard strengthened by signs and wonders and other things. By the way, God hasn't changed and the gospel hasn't changed. Amen? And so we can still expect that and, and pray for and hope for and look for and be open to all those things that the New Testament talks about as we go in out preaching the gospel, expecting, praying for, God to confirm his word by signs that accompany, or another way to say it, is that it's not just words alone, but the, but the word, the gospel only is what says, but it's never on its own. It's always accompanied by the work of the Spirit. Wow. So, and then he says, so that's what I know, he says in verse 4, and 5a I suppose and then in verse 5b he says just as you know something as well you know what we were like among you for your sake and that's in a curious little addition to this text of thanksgiving and it's he's saying yep yeah, it's the evidence that this was really God at work is not is is really about what God did among you and how you responded but it's also about what we were like when we were with you now, that is all he says in chapter 1 about his conduct in Thessalonica. He's going to develop that in chapter 2, so we'll wait on that till we get to chapter 2. But it's a little hint of what's coming further. But it turns out to be quite important how the messengers of the gospel behave when they're preaching the gospel. And uh, that adds to the authenticity of the gospel, or at least supports it and uh, backs it up. And so... It's, uh, it's an important thing, but, and, and Paul says, and you became imitators of us, in verse 6, he says, and of the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus. So now he's finished, in the end of verse 5, he's finished this prayer of thanksgiving, but he's going to carry on talking about their beginnings in Christ. And he says, you became 
imitators of us and of the Lord. So he's bringing together various strands of evidence, evidence about which he's presenting to them about how they know it was all true, all good, and all authentic. And they they really got to stay with it. Don't give up on Jesus, right? And the evidence is, the first set of evidence is, what is Paul's own memory? He says, Paul's, Paul's observation of them. This is what I thank God for. This is what I remember. This is what I know about you. That's Paul's evidence. He's telling them, you got the real deal here, man. Okay. <laughs> and then he's going to give the evidence of their memory, if you like, by reminding them of what they also know. And so, and, and then he's going to tell, give the evidence finally of what other people are saying about them, which is when he's talking about how they, other people report on the Thessalonians. But what, what happens? They receive the word, the gospel, in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. How is that imitating Jesus? Well, I, or imitating Paul. And I thought, of course, the point is Jesus was willing to suffer for the gospel, if you like, for his message, for his mission. And Paul, of course, in imitation of Christ and Silas and Timothy, also willing to suffer for uh, the truth. And the Thessalonians had to do the same. When they came to Jesus, it was no easy thing. It costly, costly conversion. And, but they did it with joy. That's an authentic Christian conversion, Right? It's when you receive the word, despite the cost, you receive the word with joy, despite the cost that you have to pay. And that the cost, I mean, not the, off, not the money in the offering basket, but the price of, of persecution, of rejection, of every pain that comes to a believer because they're believers, following Jesus, who also, Jesus, who himself was crucified. And Paul says in verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. We talked about this. And now he's going to bring in the evidence not only of their memory. We saw that in verse 5, right? Their memory, just as you know what we were like among you for your sake. But he's also going to bring in the evidence from other people who know the Thessalonians or have have heard reports of them. You became an example to all the believers in Greece. Wow. In what way? By receiving the word in joy despite the persecution they suffered and the price they paid for following Jesus. That's And that example went out and helped encourage the other churches who are also being persecuted. And said, we need to carry on in, in joyful following of the Lord and joyful, joyfully living out our Christian walk, if you like. Because look at what those Thessalonians did, amen? And by the way, uh, in, second, in Second Corinthians, Paul makes a point that the, Thessalon- the Macedonian believers, and that's where Thessalonica is, are pretty, pretty poor. Archaeology tells us that the uh, Macedonia was much poorer than Achaia in these times. So the churches in Corinth, and they, they were more wealthy, uh, churches up there in Philippi and Macedonia uh, and, and Thessalonica, 
probably much poorer. Um, now, he's going to remind them, and he's reminding them of all these things, and he says to them, you became an example. How did you become an example? Because in verse 8, the word of the Lord sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place, your faith towards God has gone out. So notice he uses these various expressions, the word of the Lord, your faith, uh, and, and so on. And all of these are basically saying the same thing. Their early response to Christ, their, their, their response to the gospel, their faith life, their Christian walk, all of these things basically were going out. It was so powerful what happened in Thessalonica that everybody at churches around heard about it and was telling, celebrating it and even telling Paul about it. Uh, in verse 9, he says, so that, he says, we don't have any need to say anything for they themselves report about us what kind of, ent- of entrance or, if you like, reception we had with you. So normal Christian conversion, right, is, includes a, the receiving of the gospel messenger, the, the, the welcoming of the gospel messenger, whoever's bringing in the word, whoever's bringing in the good news. Normal Christian conversion welcomes the messenger along with the message. Now, verse 9 also says this, they report about you, about us, you know, and what happened there, they report how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Wow. By the way, why is God called living and true God in this context? Just think about it for a moment. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's in verse 9, right? What's the difference between God and the idols? He is alive and he's true. They are dead and false, right? The idols are false gods and they're dead gods. They can't speak, they can't think, they don't do anything. They're just rocks and pieces of wood and so on. God is alive and he's true, and that's who you turn to. Notice also this word, you turned. If we're looking for a word for conversion in the New Testament, this is it. You turned. And you notice the turning is to something and from something. You turn to God, and you turn from idols. That's normal Christian conversion. It's not just turning to God, it's also turning away from idols. I once was doing evangelism in the island of Fiji, and uh, we were going door to door, and uh, we came across a family, uh, a Hindu family, who invited us in to talk about Jesus. And uh, Fiji is interesting, it was it's all the native Fijians, and it was, Fiji was colonized by the British, who then brought in a lot of Indian laborers to work the plate plantations. And they stayed, and so now it's about 
native Fijian and 50% Indians. And of those Indians, there's a lot of Hindus and some of them are Muslims. The Fijians largely, the native Fijians were largely converted to Christianity in the 19th century. So interesting place uh, of a cultural mix. But this, uh, this family asked us in to talk about Jesus and we we're trying to tell them about, about Christ, the good news. And they said, wait, wait, wait. They said, and they took us over to a, a mantelpiece above the, above the fireplace there. And on there, they had all their gods. They had, you know, Shiva and all the other little idols and pictures they had. And then they had one. I said, we, we, we already know Jesus. Here he is. And Jesus was on the mantelpiece as well. Little image of Christ. And so they're quite happy to turn to Christ for help in something. What they are not doing is turning from the idols. They just want to add Jesus to whatever else they have. Listen, that's not authentic Christian conversion. And they weren't making out that it was, but that's just an illustration, right? You, authentic Christian conversion is not just adding Jesus to everything else in your life. It is turning from those things which are false, which are wicked, which are untrue, which are idolatrous. It really must include turning to, from those as willing to God, turning to God. What do we call that? Repentance, right? And having your faith in God. And so notice they turn to God to not only to turn to ask him for stuff, in desperation, but to serve God. Authentic Christian conversion is serving God, not simply asking Him. In fact, the word here for serve is the word for being a slave. Uh, it is being a bond servant of, of God Himself. And then in verse 10, it finally says, they turned to God where they turn to God from idols, what to do? Two things. Number one, to serve the living and true God. And number two, to wait for his son from heaven. That's an interesting little addition. Authentic Christian conversion is always in the light of Christ's second coming as well as his first. In, as always in the light of his second coming as well as his first coming. It not only looks back to what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection, dying for the sins of the world, rising from the dead, ascending at the right hand of God. It also looks forward to his second coming as he returns to judge the world. And that's so important. It's amazing how many churches hardly ever talk about the second coming, even though it's quite an important topic in the Bible. And uh, and so that's why it's so helpful for us just to teach through parts of the Bible or through the Bible because we're going to come, if the Bible says it, we're going to come to it. <laughs> and uh, that's where we're going to find ourselves talking about because they're in the Bible. And it's so important, uh, you know, that the kingdom of God is, is growing, it's expanding, it's not finished yet, and there's going to come a time when Jesus returns and we're waiting for it, amen? And... You know, earlier in the passage talks about hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to the return of Christ. We have a, we, because we actually have a hope in him, 
Why do we have a hope in him? Because the return of Christ actually is a day of wrath. According to this text, Jesus who delivers us from the coming wrath. I, I'm, I know in America they say, I can't even hardly say it, wrath. Is that how you say it? Uh, forgive me, I probably say it wrong. I, I, I've just grown up in Australia and I only say wrath, but there we go. Uh, the coming wrath and the wrath is coming on the world. Authentic Christian conversion recognizes the justice and the inevitability of God's judgment on the world. Authentic Christian conversion recognizes the inevitability and the justice of God's judgment on the world and turns to, and, and, and yet waits for Jesus in hope because he has already delivered us from that coming wrath and judgment. Praise the Lord. In verse 6, we saw that the word of the Lord sounded out from them, right across the region, in fact, everywhere. This church had a reputation. They made a reputation by the way they began, and Paul saying or implying to them, carry on, carry on in that same work, labor, and endurance, faith, love, and hope. This letter starts with faith, love, and hope, and it finishes in, in, in chapter 5, verse 8, which is nearly the end of the main body of the letter. He tells them, you know, put on the helmet of, 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 uh, of let me, I better read it properly. <laughs> and uh, he put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Same kind of ideas at the beginning and the end of the main teaching of the letter. Uh, and that hope is so powerful. When Paul talks about hope, he doesn't mean just a wishful thinking. I just hope something good happens to me, you know. No, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's a positive expectation of something good coming from God. It's a positive expectation of good. Ordinary, normal Christian conversion fills you not only with faith and love, but also with hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. A positive expectation of something good. No matter the pain and the suffering in this world, no matter the persecution for believers, no matter the cost of following him, we have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a church that rings out for the Lord. You know, in, in, for many centuries, churches would ring bells to call people to come and worship. And I asked myself, what kind of church is it that really rings bells for Jesus by the way that they live? And this chapter tells us. It's a, it's a church, you know, that, and we can just to summarize again, that begins as they intend to continue in work, labor, and endurance, deriving from their faith, love, and hope in Christ. It's a church that, to whom the gospel comes in power and whole, with the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. It's a church whose, whose message, messengers of, of the gospel are received, the church who has received the messages of God, the messengers of the gospel and received the gospel with joy despite the cost. 
It's a church that has turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus. That's a church that really rings bells for Jesus in the city and in the world. And this is who the Thessalonians were. Paul is not saying, be like this. He's telling them, you are like this. You are. He's encouraging them. And he says, because you began that way, it's authentic. Now, listen, what if your Christian experience doesn't quite match up to this ideal? What if you haven't had a normal Christian conversion? You know, there's no repentance much there. Uh, you know, there's, there was, you missed some of these key elements that we've been talking about. What do you do if your conversion hardly sounds like this model does it matter well yes it matters it might matter because there are things that you need to that might be missing in your christian experience if you haven't turned away from sin but just turned to god that would matter you know and so on and you could go through what we've been talking about but hear me the grace of god is there people come to christ in all kinds of ways inadequate sometimes and yet God still saves them because he's he's greater than our inadequacies amen and so it's it's okay to ask is there something missing in my Christian walk did I not have you know the full experience of of conviction of the power of the spirit and and so on that this passage talks about it's okay to ask that and say Lord that's what I want and that's what I need here I'm coming to you for that but listen, this is mainly a passage about encouragement. It's saying, look what, look at what Jesus has done for you already. Look what God has done among you. Don't give up on it. Amen. It's the real deal. If you sign on to the Jesus project, you sign on to the truth. It's the truth of the universe and of, of everything. It's the truth. It's authentic. It's true. It's real. It's utterly wonderful. Never back down from it, no matter the cost. Amen. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done, the hope you've given us, the glorious gospel that has saved us. Right? It's God who's saving us, not just words, but his very power, his grace, his Holy Spirit. Thank you for what you've done in bringing us this far. Lord, we want to be encouraged today like the Thessalonians just to carry on because it's all good and it's all true and it's all wonderful we can carry on in faith love and hope and in work labor and endurance we can carry on in our turn in serving you in waiting for our, your son from heaven because he delivers us from the coming wrath. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. What a wonderful God you are. Amen.